Welcome back and welcome to this second session. My name is Neil O'Doherty. I'm in the School of Political Science and Sociology here at NUI Galway. Um, before I go any further, I just want to recall an event we had last April, which formed part of the foundation for this event. We gathered together with um, former members of the former European Commission officials involved in the peace process to reflect on the EU's involvement in Ireland, North and South, an event organised by Jada Lagana, who's here today, we're a very uh, recent PhD graduate of ours. So some of the contacts for this conference come from that uh, event last year. It was about reflection. This is very much about looking forward, about the current moment, about what lies beyond Brexit. The title of the panel is The Politics of Brexit, which is a kind of a, a very broad title. But I think it's important to emphasize that politics. So people here will, will address it from very different perspectives, academic, journalistic, uh, activist, and um, party political. But most importantly, we have to keep thinking of Brexit as a political phenomena. And I remember being at an event in Belfast just after the vote, where there were a number of civil servants who said, OK, now the decision's been made, we just have to implement this, and the important thing is to do it as efficiently, and um, you know, just to do it in the proper way, looking on it as kind of a matter of implementation, a technical and an administrative challenge. But we need to recall Max Weber's distinction between the administrative and the political. A hundred years ago, when he, when he says there is administration, and that belongs to one realm, and it's a very, very different realm from the political, which is about struggle, conflict, leadership, and attempts to impose a particular preference. And that's quite distinct and needs to be understood as distinct from administration and from the business of implementation. And Brexit is political all the way down, if you like. It's not technical. And I think it's particularly important when it comes to discussion of the border in Ireland and cross-border relations between the Republic and the North, there is often a kind of um, a feeling that this can be resolved by some sort of technical fix. I think it's important to recall the politics of it all, as, as Kevin in particular mentioned at the beginning. Uh, a very diverse panel, as I said, stretching across different realms, journalism, academia, and politics. Our first speaker is Tony Connolly. Uh, we're delighted to have him here. He's Europe editor for RTE News and Current Affairs. He's author of Brexit in Ireland, The Dangers, the Opportunities, and the Inside Story of the Irish Response. He's been reporting on Europe for RTE since 2001, and all of us, have his, his, he's become really a household name over the past couple of years in Ireland because he's the, the, the first person with many of these stories um, and lives in Brussels. And i like you to join me in welcoming Tony Connolly. Thank you very much, Neil. And um, it's great to be here in Galway. It's great to get away from the, the the bubble of Brussels and kind of the bubble of Westminster as well. So, I've got about fifteen minutes to talk about the politics of Brexit, and as, as Neil said, it, it is an intensely political um, phenomenon, but it is also legal and technical as well. So I think the best thing for me to do is to try and uh, just bring people up to date with the negotiations. Um, 
I think we've had a kind of a pattern in the, in the past year where there's a certain flurry of activity in Westminster, expectations get raised, and then Theresa May comes to Brussels or the Brexit Secretary comes to Brussels and those expectations are then punctured by the reality of uh, what the EU is prepared to accept and the red lines that they have, have put forward. So I, I sometimes tend to see Brexit as, you know, the Brexit being tidal um, and the EU being uh, geological. Uh, the EU is a much more fixed, solid, um, you know, entity and force in this whole drama because they are defending their rules-based institutions and uh, the evolution of the single market and the customs union, whereas Brexit is a much more tidal, turbulent uh, process which uh, crashes on the rocks of, of Brussels and then retreats and then crashes again. And uh, we may get a beach out of this process at the end of it. Uh, who knows, that we can all relax on. Uh, or, or it may more likely be uh, a disappointing compromise for the UK um, where we're at at the moment is, as you know, the withdrawal agreement was concluded on the 25th of November last year, and it was agreed by the 27 member state uh, heads of government and Theresa May. She went back and realised pretty much immediately that it could not be passed in the House of Commons, so she pulled the vote on the 5th of um, December, uh, and... Then the vote was uh, taken in January and it, it suffered a historic defeat. So since then, she has been working to try and convince the House of Commons that she can get legally binding changes to the backstop in such a way as to deliver the House of Commons and to ratify the treaty. That's kind of in a nutshell where things are at. And a, an important landmark in that uh, journey for Theresa May has been the Brady Amendment where she was able to say with a little bit more conviction that the House of Commons could approve the withdrawal treaty if the backstop was replaced by uh, alternative arrangements, whatever they might mean. Um, now, th she was doing this against a backdrop of fairly repeated uh, declarations from the EU and Ireland that the, the withdrawal agreement could not be reopened that the backstop could not be renegotiated, that any idea of a unilateral exit mechanism for the UK uh, or a time limit, an expiry date to the backstop would simply not be acceptable. Uh, so again, you have this uh, you know, drifting dichotomy of, of, the, of the two sides. Westminster, you know, in its own conversation about what can happen, and, and Brussels having its fairly fixed idea of, of what's what's doable. However, I mean, to be fair to Theresa May, she has got a process underway. There is a three-track process. One is where uh, they are looking at alternative arrangements. Um, they're going to look at changes to the political declaration, which might, uh, again, erode this idea that the backstop can be anything but temporary. Um, and uh, they are trying to get some legally binding guarantees or assurances <clears throat> So we have, we've had a bit of traffic back and forward to Brussels. We've had Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General there, Steve Barclay, the new Brexit Secretary. Ollie Robbins was there this week, who's Theresa May's chief negotiator. Uh, and a, a lot of this has to be seen, I think, in, in the context of the, 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 the clock being run down by Theresa May. So, we, so the next big vote is going to be on the 12th of March at the latest. 
Uh, and so in theory, by the 12th of March, the changes she's seeking from Brussels have to be done and dusted by then so she can bring these changes to the House of Commons and get, get the withdrawal agreement approved. And then, uh, hey presto, we leave uh, at the end of, uh, Britain leaves at the end of March. Um, the, tr the trouble is that Theresa May has articulated again that she wants legally binding changes to the backstop. She wants, uh, if possible, a unilateral exit tr mechanism, a, uh, a time limit. Um, but these are clearly not deliverable by the EU. So uh, the, behind the scenes in Brussels, what they're trying to do is to give Geoffrey Cox, the Attorney General, a form of words that will allow him to change the legal advice that he gave to the Prime Minister back in November, which said that the backstop could lead to the UK remaining uh, tied to the EU Customs Union uh, indefinitely. Um, so the question is, what form of words will he get? Uh, what will the legal mechanism be that will allow him to say that this is legally binding? And that's really where the, where the, the kind of slow action is at the moment in Brussels. It's all very much uh, under wraps because they're terrified of producing any text or draft text at the moment because once you produce a text, it leaks and then you get a backlash. And we are back into this kind of quasi-tunnel experience that we had in the run-up to the conclusion of the negotiations last year. So um, that, that's really where things are at. Uh, we, we don't know what mechanism they're going to use. Um, the Irish government has always been of the view that any additional protocol that's added to the withdrawal agreement uh, changes it. So they, they were very resistant to any extra legally binding mechanism back in December at the European Council, as were the other member states, uh, let, let's not forget. Um, so I think the key... Uh, determinants of this will be the timing. I suspect that they will produce uh, a form of words at the very last minute to minimize the chance that the ERG, the European Research Group, can see it and tear it to pieces. Um, and I think the, the form, uh, the, the content of this mechanism, whatever it is, uh, will determine the form of it. So, so form follows content, uh, and the content will be something in the territory of the letter that was written by Donald Tusk and Jean-Claude Juncker and sent to Theresa May on the 14th of January. So remember, just before the, the vote in the House of Commons on the uh, 15th of January, the EU sent a letter to Theresa May basically spelling out that the withdrawal, the Irish protocol is temporary. It's only there as an insurance policy. It's only there unless and until uh, a, a further agreement supersedes it. Um, so essentially, you could say that, that Britain is, is merely looking for that uh, letter to be turned into some kind of legal mechanism to give it much more legal force. Um, because the DUP and the, and the ERG have said, like, a letter is not going to cut it. But you can see there's been a gradual narrowing uh, and, so, uh, I suppose, softening of the expectations on the DUP and the ERG side. I mean, initially, they, the DUP said, we need to get the backstop out completely. Uh, then I think Nigel Dodds of the DUP said, well, we need to get the toxicity of the backstop out completely, which is a very important distinction. Um, and uh, so how they do that is, is going to be key. Now, my understanding is that the, um, the, the more teeth that this form of words uh, has, so, the, so, the, so the, the, the tougher the language in there, 
the softer the legal mechanism um, as, a, as a careful balancing thing. Uh, on the other hand, if the language is somewhat anemic, then Jeffrey Cox may look for a, a stronger legal mechanism. Now, there's talk about a joint interpretative instrument, which is something that was used in the EU-Canada free trade agreements. If you remember when EU, the EU and Canada were negotiating a free trade agreement um, a couple of years back, it's, it's a mixed agreement, which means all member states and all parliaments have to approve it. And in Belgium's case, because they have this very fragmented federal system, the uh, Parliament of Wallonia, the southern French-speaking region of Belgium, also had to uh, ratify this huge global EU-Canada uh, trade deal, and they objected to it uh, for various reasons. There were there were concerns about the um, about the uh, tribunal, the, like the the independent uh, tribunal that would uh, settle disputes, um, and it was it was kind of an interesting moment because the. Wallonia uh, exports a lot of um, fruit and vegetables to Canada, potentially, uh, and they were blocking this, and yet they, they were also exporting uh, weapons to, uh, to Saudi Arabia. So this was an interesting uh, juxtaposition of priorities at the time. Um, what this joint interpretative instrument did back then was it basically interpreted what the text meant, and it sort of spelled out and contextualized what the text meant. Um, it didn't change the text of the treaty, but it sort of explained it. But it was still a legally binding document under the uh, Vienna Convention. So there's been some speculation that this could be the territory for uh, a, a legal mechanism. Um, uh, my understanding, again, is that the Irish government is, is very wary of this. Again, they think that anything added changes uh, the treaty, even though um, in, the, in the CETA case that wasn't the, 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 that wasn't the case. Um, so we are waiting now for a, a fleshed out uh, moment when um, the European Commission in the shape of Michel Barnier and Stephen uh, Barclay, the Brexit Secretary, can say, okay, we have a form of words uh, and we're now ready to put this to the House of Commons. Now there's a bit of an ease in the UK because um, the European 27 leaders are not going to approve this before it goes to the House of Commons. That's, remember, what happened in November, and they got badly burned because they they all gave up their weekends to come to Brussels on the 25th of November. They approved the withdrawal agreement, and then the House of Commons rejected it. So next time around, there's going to be, I suppose it's going to be a gentleman's agreement between Michel Barnier and Stephen Barclay uh, that this is uh, what both sides have agreed. Then it has to go to the House of Commons for ratification. Uh, and the question there will be, is, is this uh, a new motion uh, that Theresa May would, I, I assume, put to the House of Commons with this extra text? Uh, would it be amendable? Uh, that could complicate things. But whatever happens, the, the uh, European 27 leaders, the EU 27, are not going to touch this until they know it's been ratified by the House of Commons. Uh, so that does add a bit of uncertainty to the process. Um, the other parallel development this week, uh, as you all know, is the question of an extension to Article 50. Theresa May has made it an article of faith that she didn't want to extend the Brexit negotiations, and she said so in, in uh, Sharm el-Sheikh at the beginning of the week. 24 hours later, she was forced into 
admitting that there could be an extension to Article 50, a short technical extension, as she put it. Um, so, so that's really now a bit of a game changer. That, that has changed the dynamics a little bit uh, between both sides. I suppose because we're narrowing down the options, like the, the number of variables in this uh, process are, are, are getting chipped away all the time. Um, so what, what are the implications of a, um, a short technical extension? If it's an extension up until the beginning of July, that's fine because the European elections will have happened at the end of May. Britain won't need to have participated in those elections because the new parliament only gets legally constituted on the 2nd of July. So they could run the extension up to the end to the end of June. Um, if it goes beyond that, then uh, it would it would only, as far as I'm aware, be a nine month extension because that would bring uh, bring us up to the end of that financial cycle. If you get beyond nine months, then you get into the next phase of the EU budget, which is the seven year budget cycle, and that gets very messy then because the question would be, does the UK start to have to increase its contributions? Uh, to cover this new uh, budget cycle and so on. Um, the mood in Brussels and, and capitals about an extension is, well, if you definitely needed to get this over the line, of course, we wouldn't um, necessarily object to it. The French are kicking off a little bit. They're, they're not very happy about this idea of an extension just for the sake of it, so that it just facilitates more of the same uh, you know, relentless cycle of, of uh, acrimony and, and uh, polarised debate in, in, the West, in Westminster. They would want some clear reason for having this extension. Is it for a general election? Is it for a second referendum? Um, they would be probably reluctant to facilitate a second uh, an extension just to, to cushion the effect uh, of no deal. Um, so ultimately, uh, we, we are now in this kind of very tense waiting game as we get uh, into March. Uh, remember, there's only about 30 days left. Uh, before the um, before Brexit Day, a lot can go wrong. Uh, even if Theresa May has this very elaborate choreography where she has a vote on the 12th, uh, if that goes down, then she has another vote on the 13th and 14th, and so on. Um, but a lot can go wrong in that in that time, and it's still highly plausible that that Geoffrey Cox will get a form of words which just simply don't cut it with the DUP, and the feeling in, in the Conservative Party is that if the DUP can say yes, they would bring most of the other Eurosceptics with them, but if they can't say yes, um, then you, you are still left with a scenario where Theresa May needs the support of, uh, of the Labour Party, um, and the thing is she probably won't get enough Labour MPs on her side so in that case, if the vote goes down again, you would have to have an extension. But again, you'd have to have this extension with something in mind. Uh, the EU will want to say, well, okay, we need clarity on this finally. We need a, a clear plan as to why we're extending this. Because there's no point in creating another cliff edge uh, at the end of June, uh, an artificial cliff edge at the end of June, if we're going to be back uh, on the same territory. Um, so so that's uh, really where we're at. And I'll... I'll, I'll bring things to a close just, just uh, at that point. Uh, we have the somewhat um, subterranean process in Brussels involving uh, Geoffrey Cox, Steve Barclay and Michel Barnier. And then we've got the much more uh, ostentatious process happening in Westminster, as always, with the, the creation of this independent uh, group of MPs, uh, the threats of resignations and so on. Um, I would make a final point in saying that, you know, whatever you say about her 
her place in world history. Theresa May has soldiered on and she has actually maneuvered people into this um, moment and she has had this ability to puncture the, uh, the, the, the revolution which never quite materialises. Okay, we've had this uh, creation of the independent group but that's more of a Labour Party phenomenon, I think, than, than a Conservative Party phenomenon. Uh, so um, I'll leave it there and, of course, we'll be taking questions uh, as the time comes. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. Steve Aiken. He's Chief Whip of the Ulster Unionist Party and MLA for South Antrim. Uh, he's had a varied career, including being uh, spending 30 years in the Royal Navy as commander of nuclear submarines, quite a striking uh, bio, and also served in, in the Middle East, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, uh, subsequently, he was chief executive of the British-Irish Chamber of Commerce and even a year at a, an unnamed university in Ireland here, DCU, DCU I'm, I'm prepared to say it aloud. Um, and uh, yeah, and thank you very much for Steve to coming along and I'd like you to welcome him. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed, and thank you very much indeed coming to listening to what I would only call the only unionist in the village sort of speech, which I tend to do quite a lot of. Um, I'm also very conscious of the fact that for this debate and the wider debate, I'm probably the wrong sort of unionist that you want, because what you really want to do is have somebody like Sammy Wilson from the DUP here trying to explain somehow how all it matters. But... I'll try and explain from our perspective and to look at some of the nuances of where we're going to. And I'll probably keep it a bit shorter than 15 minutes, so I'll not need to get the two-minute sign, but I would really welcome your questions and any discussion points you would have afterwards. Because this, for me, is very much part of an outreach. And it's an outreach for a very personal reason. Because in April 2014, along with some of the other people in this room, I was at Windsor Castle. I was introduced to Her Majesty the Queen and to the President of Ireland. We were at that stage, everybody was discussing, this is a fantastic place for British-Irish relationships to be at. Just as we're approaching our century, how can we make it better? What could possibly go wrong? Um, Mike Nesbitt, who was then the leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, and I was uh, a very minor member of an august body called the British Irish Association, and I sat on the board. And when I announced I was going into politics, they all sort of laughed at me a bit. Uh, but Mike Nesbitt turned around to me and said, look, Steve, politics in Northern Ireland is moving on. Bearing in mind this was uh, in 2016. Politics in Northern Ireland is moving on. It's moving from orange and green. It's now all going to be about the economy. It's all going to be about how we can make Northern Ireland work for everybody. And I suppose, like a bit of an idiot, I listened to him and got involved in politics. And I had two very clear lines that I had as a politician. The first one is that I am a liberal unionist, and I say that with pride. I believe in marriage equality. I believe in women's rights. I very clearly, as a unionist, want everybody in Northern Ireland to have the same rights as they have in the rest of the United Kingdom. Because I strongly believe that the United Kingdom is best for all of us. 
The second issue that I was very clear about was that I am a Remainer. I was a Remainer, I will continue to be a Remainer, and I will be a Remainer forever, ever. And I'm a Remainer for three reasons. And I think this comes very closely to what you've been talking about, Tony, and other people here have been talking about the debate. The first reason was quite simple with my experience of the British Irish Chamber of Commerce. British industry, British business, no matter what, is going to follow the rules and regulations and, if necessary, the tariffs and everything that's led down by its biggest market, the EU. We're not going to change how we build Airbus wings. We're not going to change how we make uh, BMW engines in Swindon. We're going to follow the rules and regulations. That was always a red herring. Coupled to that was the fact that Britain always got much more out of the EU than it put in. And people never realised that because it was never sold that way. The second issue was a question of security. Now, you know, it's not very often you get somebody who's a nuclear submarine captain standing up in front of you and telling you how security was. But one of the things I've learned is I quite like the idea in the international system of having a speed bump of around about 350 million people between me and the bad guys. And ladies and gentlemen, there is a lot of bad guys out there. What's going on in North Africa? What's going on in the Middle East? What's going on throughout the rest of the international system? What's happening in Russia? What's happening across the Atlantic? I was always told many years ago when I was a senior lecturer at the Defense Academy, and we asked a very senior American general about what was one of the things that we should avoid in life going forward. And he said it very clearly, never live at an inflection point in history. We are at an inflection point in history. And collective security is what the United Kingdom's been doing since the 1700s. Always get somebody else to come and deal with your security and help fight your wars and do all those sorts of things in the widest sense possible is a, is a process that we've been doing. And British politics has always been about pragmatism until recently. And one of the biggest things that's actually happened in the British body politic, and I know people will argue against this, is we've actually put ideology into the British political system. Britain doesn't do ideology, or it didn't. It does now. And that is a very fundamental change in where we're going to as well. Because that led on to the three, third reason, and the third reason why I was a Remainer. Because I thought it would completely polarise politics in Northern Ireland. And it has, in a massive way. It has done it in a way that has taken somebody who's like me who is a unionist, who voted to remain, has now been forced to put themselves into a camp where they're trying to make me into an extremist, as being perceived as my other fellow people here on the island of Ireland. I am a classic John Hewittist. For those of you who don't understand, I'm British, I'm Irish, I'm European, I'm married to an American, my kids have got three passports, I'm also an Atlanticist. I am a citizen of the world. And when I sit round a table and Theresa May sits opposite me, and I tell you what, if ever if you want to have a fascinating experience, never sit around a table with Theresa May. <laughs> I can tell you it's probably one of the dullest afternoons you're ever going to have. <laughs> but when she says, oh, the, all these citizens of the world, I say, I am a citizen of the world. And by the way, Prime Minister, you know, I was awarded the OBE for defending our nation. Many people in the Royal Navy, many people in the armed forces would always see themselves as citizens of the world and trying to make a place a better place. So when we talk about the construct of where we are now and what we're dealing with the challenges we have in, in the whole Brexit debate, 
we have reached a point where I've got a real concern about relationships on these islands. And I'll use the word on these islands a lot. Because in Dublin, and I can say that having lived there quite recently for five years, when we thought about Britain, we looked east. In London, when we thought about Europe, we looked east. We never looked north, we never looked west. For many people in Britain, it was a complete and utter shock to discover the fact that the Irish Republic was death what wasn't even was in the EU as well, and they might be in some way upset about what was going on. Equally, the whole idea right at the beginning, and I remember being in the room with Enda Kenny and Charlie Flanagan. I remember being in the room when we were talking about all the issues were going to be very difficult to solve. The border was going to be the easy one because nobody wanted a hard border north, south, or east or west. The really difficult bit was going to be on tariffs and regulations, and it was going to be on where we were going to as well. And Tony, you quite rightly in your book talked about the discussions that were going on at the time right at the beginning, because those were the discussions. But the border then became a negotiating tactic, and it became, it developed a life of its own. And I call it the Frankenstein monster, because it won't die. And as I've said to many people in Northern Ireland, you know, People in London weren't aware. They thought Northern Ireland was done business. It was done 20 odd years ago. The problems have gone away or they can be managed. Now Northern Ireland is very much back on the agenda. And guess what? It's not going away for a particularly long period of time. And that has really swept into what has been going into Northern Ireland at the moment. Because in the Northern Ireland politics, we're in this really strange situation where based on, depending where you believe it or not, on an issue with wood chips that go into wood chip boilers, we have reached a stage where the entire Northern Ireland peace process, depending who you talk to, is unravelling. And it's unravelling over issues to do with RHI, the Renewable Heat Initiative, but more than that, it's about a fundamental issue of trust. And it's the ability of the body politic to talk to each other and get going. And to me, the key to this, and this is very much the, the sort of the issue it had been, sort of Northern Ireland, in many respects, is not yet grown, enough, grown up enough yet to be able to make the big boy decisions that they're supposed to be able to make for a variety of reasons, rightly and wrongly. And one of the things that if you're a marriage, uh, one thing is if you go into a school and you're dealing with an issue with children who come from a dysfunctional family, the first thing you look at is not the children, you actually look at the parents. And one of the issues with the parents here, particularly in Dublin and in London, there is not the degree of trust and understanding that there was. I have sat in the room with senior Irish politicians, the most senior Irish politicians, and they were specifically using language about the border, which I would have expected to come from Sinn Féin. I've also been in the room in London listening to senior British politicians who make derogatory comments about Ireland that would never have been made two to three years ago, would never have been made by David Cameron. But those comments are being made now. And it's megaphone diplomacy. People are shouting past each other. So we must get to the point where we get to a position to re-establish those relationships and how we need to do them. And then, to add to the joy of it, we brought out the backstop. Now, the backstop in its place as if it was about making sure 
there was no impediments to trade north, south, east or west, there wouldn't be an issue. But it's not. As has been pointed out by Lord Trimble and Lord Bew, and despite the fact that many people try and sort of argue against it, it is in fact, if the backstop came into place, it would fundamentally undermine the principle of consent in Northern Ireland. And I will argue that with anybody. With Northern Ireland to be run through a series of specialist and joint committees, that there is no democratic accountability and process in with Northern Ireland able to interact with, that undermines the principle of consent. But further to that, one of the things that has been mapped out about the backstop is the backstop covers the areas of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, the 142 areas and the 333 sub-areas that go to that. That permutates every element of life in Northern Ireland in one way or another. And that would mean that we would, not, we would have lost the principle of consent as we go forward. And that is the reason our party is fundamentally opposed to the backstop. The backstop needs to be amended or changed, and there needs to be issues to do that as well. And that's, if you want to get in a nutshell why unionism as a whole is against the idea of the backstop, that's it. If we can amend that, that's where we need to. And one of the biggest issues we have going forward is how we get people to understand that on this island, we need to rebuild the relationships, but those relationships must be built within the subset of relationships on these islands. I mean, John and I know, you know, a billion euros worth of trade a week that goes back and forth across the Irish Sea, round it, everything. And when we tried to map it out, it's very difficult to actually clearly map it out. There's a reason for that, because it's all the same stuff. It all travels in the same lorries, it all goes to the same distribution centres, it all works out of the same supermarkets, it all works on those principles as well. 86% of all that trade and all those issues and the rest of it actually stays on these islands. So there is a potentiality of a solution that looks like an all-island solution. But it would need imagination from both from Europe and Britain to make it work. And that's the thing that we've been advocating for and we've been advocating for for some time. But it's not our idea. It's actually Michal Martin's and it's Charlie Flanagan's idea. Because that's where the conversation was. But things have morphed so much in that period of time, this is where we are. So... Just coming to the end of what I'm going to quickly say, um, one of the questions you probably want to know is, where are we going in the Northern Ireland process at the moment? Uh, when are we going to get talks back up and running? Uh, just so you're aware, I'm in the middle of vitally intensive talks that started on the 25th of uh, February, according to the Taoiseach, and we have done precisely no talking whatsoever. There is absolutely no indication that Sinn Féin, for whatever particular reasons, wants to get involved in getting the process back up and running. They don't even want to come into a series of talks until everything that they want agreed has been agreed, which is the negotiating position of the deaf or dictatorship. We can't allow that, and that's unfortunately why I think the only solution we have for Northern Ireland at the moment is to get us into a position of direct rule. The only other problem I have is that you just have to look at London at the moment and you think they don't even have the bandwidth to sort their own lives out. How the heck are they going to deal with Northern Ireland? On that cheery, happy <laughs> note, thank you very much indeed. <clears throat> thank you very much. Uh, our next speaker is Dr Anna Bailey. She's a political scientist specialising in British and Russian politics. 
She obtained her PhD in political science from University College London. Her book, Politics Under the Influence, Vodka and Public Policy in Putin's Russia, was published in 2018. She's previously worked at the UK Civil Service and is now editorial consultant for Briefings for Brexit, an academic website making the intellectual case for Brexit, and serves on the committee of the Campaign for an Independent Britain, the UK's longest-running membership organisation campaigning for UK exit from the EU. Thank you. Sorry, I was just getting my timer sorted so I definitely don't overrun. Uh, well, thank you very much for that introduction. And I'd like to say a special thank you to the organisers of this conference, so Dan and Catherine, um, for inviting me to be here. It's a real honour for me um, to be able to be here and get the Irish perspective on Brexit. Um, I think that's something really important, given how divisive this issue is, that if we are to move forward, even if we don't agree on everything, we, we really need to understand each other's point of view. Um, so I don't know about being the only unionist in the building. I think being the only Brexiteer in the building might be worse. <laughs> um, now, I'm not here to convert you to the wonders of Brexit because that would be counterproductive as much as anything else. Um, but fundamentally, I, I am an academic. I'm a political scientist. Um, so I'd like to think I'm as capable as being objective as any other academic. Um, so my, my aim is to analyse ra rather than to try and persuade in this context. Um, but obviously I am a Brexiteer, so I can at least give some insight into um, background, in, uh, give some insight into a Brexiteer perspective. Um, so what I've decided to concentrate on is some of the background issues um, that are really essential to understanding all this day-to-day -day politics that seems so crazy and it's all so divided and things keep changing every day. Um, that there's some sort of background stuff that's really essential if, if you're to make sense of what's actually going on at the political level. So... In theory, the referendum was supposed to settle the question of EU membership once and for all so that we could move on. I mean, Europe is something that's divided uh, British politics at the party level ever since we entered the EU, basically, um, in 1973. Um, but rather than drawing a line under it and deciding the issue once, once and for all, it's kind of done the opposite um, and opened a whole can of worms and actually entrenched divisions in both politics and in society. So the first really important point I want to make is the huge divisions that Brexit has either caused or revealed, depending on your point of view, in British society. So why is that? And I, I think there's two main reasons. Firstly, this is the first time in British history that a referendum um, has resulted in the public going against the establishment view. Um, and that's opened up this crack for people to 
sort of contest the result and say, well, maybe we shouldn't Brexit after all, maybe we should have a second referendum, um, that, I, that I think really wouldn't have happened if we'd have voted to remain. I, I don't think we'd now be talking about having another referendum on should we actually stay or leave in case someone's changed their minds. Um, but the second and perhaps the more important factor is that Brexit has become not just about the political question, but has fundamentally come to define people's very identities. You either identify as a Brexiteer or a Remainer. Um, and it's like a civil war. Um, Professor um, Robert Toombs has made this point. He's a, he's a member of Briefings for Brexit, one of the co-founders, but he's also a historian based at the University of Cambridge. Um, he's written an article comparing Brexit to the the English Civil War of the 17th century. So it's really polarised society and defined identities at a very fundamental level. And there's some excellent research recently been published by um, Professor Jeff Evans um, in Brexit and Public Opinion, which was published by the UK in a Changing Europe, um, which is sort of an academic think tank, if you like, um, so in mid-2018, two years after the referendum, so this is a whole two years after the referendum, 94% um, of people still identified as either leave or remain. Um, and this is very different to whether you identify with a political party, because one in five people has no party identity. But only 6% of people have no leave or remain identity. Um, moreover, and this is um, a quote from Evans, the social and emotional intensity of these Brexit identities held by almost everybody is far higher than those found in, for political parties. Mm. So the identities are both broader and deeper. Um, it's fair to say that remain is the more socially acceptable identity. Leavers often keep quiet about it for fear of judgment or professional consequences. Um, and so you've had these groups emerge like Briefings for Brexit, which was founded basically in the first instance to give a voice to those academics, which is obviously a very pro-Remain arena, to give a voice to those academics who were in favour of Brexit and felt like they were being silenced in a way. Um, and another organisation called Leavers of London, set up by a lady called um, Kate, Katie Harris, um, which was basically, again, to, for people who are working in professions, say, or areas of the country where it is socially unacceptable to to be a Brexiteer, for them to be able to, it's almost like a safe space in the modern terminology, to provide a safe space for the, them to come together and talk with like-minded people. So why is this social division important in policy terms? When policy is tied so closely to identity, emotion dominates other over all other interests, economic interests, for example, and people are much less inclined to compromise. And this actually reminds me, of, in many ways, of the peace process with Sinn Féin and the DUP, for example. 
Now, I always say that if an alien from space came down with no emotional involvement in this process, they would say, well, there's a really obvious compromise solution. Why doesn't the UK join F- rejoin EFTA, which it was a founder member of, um, and participate in the EEA, so still remaining a member of the single market? Mm. Um, so it's sort of you're getting rid of all the political cooperation stuff, but you're still in the, um, in the single market with the economic cooperation. And that would seem to be a fairly reasonable compromise between um, the, two, the two parties. Um, and this actually used to be a fairly standard Eurosceptic plan for EU departure. Um, but because of this, this identity politics, moderate policies and compromises have been rejected by both sides. The debate has really gone to the extremes. So what might seem to be an obvious, sensible compromise solution has been rejected by just about everyone. Um, There's three main reasons, I think, for this. There's the refusal of some politicians to accept the referendum result. So there's no no incentive for Remainers to compromise. They may as well try and get a rerun rerun of the referendum and hopefully get a Remain vote. Um, And you've obviously got the highly funded People's Vote campaign. Um, It's interesting that moderate moderate options such as the EFTA-Stroke EEA option had already been trashed by Cameron and and the Remain campaign in the referendum um, to sort of take it off the table so that the only, in the referendum campaign, the only real Brexit option, if you like, was the more sort of hard Brexit option. So that was in, in... um, to sort of mm. dissuade people in the middle for to voting leave. Um, and also Theresa May's red lines. I mean, she came out fairly early with these red lines that Brexit must mean we leave the single market, we leave the customs union, we leave the jurisdiction of the ECJ. Um, and that really set the tone. It was like, well, if a Remainer like Theresa May is saying that the only way to get a, a Brexit that respects the result is to leave the single market and customs union, then obviously that, that must be true. And EEA must really be sort of remain in disguise or something like that. Um, and I can't highlight enough the paranoia and the lack of trust. Literally no one trusts anything the other, t- the other side says. Um, so in, in terms of economic forecasts, it, it's always like, well, that's obviously been bit written by a Remainer. If it, it says that, you know, leaving the EU will be terrible. If it says actually it won't be so bad, then oh, obviously that's been written by a Brexiteer. Um, so there's no sort of source of information, if you like, that's accepted as genuinely impartial. Um, And this actually explains why no deal has now become the most popular policy amongst what I would call active Brexiteers. So um, activists and Brexiteers who are sort of active and vocal on social media. Um, The thinking is just that people are paranoid that Brexit's going to be stopped somehow and they just want to get out as quickly and completely as possible and doesn't really matter what the economic consequences are because that sort of 
short term and the important thing is to get out while we can before the vote's overturned. So that, that's the mentality, if you like. Um, the other main point I want to make is, I've, I've put it as a heading here, it's not all about Brexit. So what do I mean by that? When, when trying to work out what's going to happen next in terms of the politics, especially at the Westminster level, Brexit itself mm. isn't the only consideration. So the Tories and the Labour Party both have to live in a post-Brexit world or a post-non-Brexit world, as, as might happen. Um, so both parties all the time have got one eye on this. Um, some YouGov surveys that um, in the 2015 referendum, of those who voted Conservative in 2015, 61% um, then went on to vote Leave in the referendum. Um, and for Labour, it's sort of more or less the opposite. So of those who voted Labour in 2015, 65% went on to vote Remain in the referendum. Um, and that division was actually accentuated uh, in the 2017 general election. So it went up to 71% for both sides. So for Conservative, those who voted Conservative in the 2017 election, 71% of them had voted Leave in the referendum. And the same for Labour, but the other way around, 71% of Labour voters in 2017 had mm. voted Remain. So obviously this has important issues um, for the Tories need to be pursuing a fairly Brexity line and need to make sure they're not accused of betraying the referendum result, um, not least because the Tories got a lot more, the, the Tories got more, more of a leave vote in 2017 because they took a lot of votes from UKIP. And very much in the back of their minds is that the referendum from Cameron's point of view was not only to heal divisions in the Tory party, but to stop the rise of UKIP and stop UKIP taking votes from the Conservative Party. Um, and the thinking is, if we don't get a Brexit that satisfies Brexiteers, then you'll get the rise of probably not UKIP, because that's more or less dead now, but perhaps some alternative party, Nigel Farage's new Brexit party, for example. Um, also bear in mind that grassroots membership is very pro-Brexit. Um, although CCHQ, so the Conservative Party headquarters, obviously based in London, allegedly very pro-Remain. So you've got sort of a, a contradiction there. Um, in theory, if, if you look at the Tory party membership, you'd expect over time to get MPs who are more and more anti-EU and, and pro-Brexit and pro-hard Brexit. Um, but the Tory party is actually very anti-democratic, internally speaking. Um, so it's very hard to say what will happen in that respect. Um, but one final very important point as concerns Labour. So we've said that 71% of those who voted Labour in 2017 were remain supporters but the way that translates into constituencies is very interesting because the remain vote is very concentrated in urban city areas it turns out there's been some research by professor chris Hangre hangretti 
Um, he's at pains to say these are estimates only, um, but the data is sort of fairly conclusive, I would say. Um, this is GB only, by, by the way. Northern Ireland isn't included in this for obvious reasons, but um, we're looking at Conservative and Labour. Um, 61% of constituencies won by Labour in 2017 voted Leave. 61%. More than half of Labour's present constituencies actually voted Leave. So that's a real fine balancing act for Labour to play, even when you forget about Corbyn's own politics, which are fairly Eurosceptic. Everyone sort of thinks that privately he actually wants Brexit but can't say it publicly. But then you've got all these Labour MPs who are overwhelmingly pro-Remain, very many of them in favour of a second ref referendum. You've got all these contradictory factors at play, um, and that's why Corbyn's had a very delicate balancing act to play. Um, it's very interesting that he's now come out in favour of a second referendum. Um, whether he, the, he could get a majority for that in the House of Commons, even with Tories, you know, pro-Remain Tories jumping in, is quite doubtful, in my opinion, because of all those Labour MPs in northern constituencies who are looking over their shoulder and think, if I vote mm. for a second referendum, I'm going to be out of my ear at the next election. Um, there's actually loads more I could say, but on my timer, I'm already at nearly 17 minutes, so I'm going to stop now, and hopefully we'll have time for more in questions. <clears throat> Our final speaker in this panel is Dr. Mary C. Murphy from UCC. She holds a Jean Monnet Chair in European Integration, is a lecturer in the Department of Government and Politics in UCC, and specialises in the study of the European Union and Northern Ireland politics. She's the author of Northern Ireland and the European Union, The Ch Dynamics of a Changing Relationship, and most recently, Europe and Northern Ireland's Future, negotiating Brexit's unique case. Um, she was also in 2015, she was awarded a Fulbright Schumann Fellowship and was based during that time at George Mason University in the United States. Thank you. Thanks very much, Niall. And uh, like the other speakers, thanks to the organizers for the opportunity to be here and to uh, to flesh out some of the ideas around the politics of Brexit, which is a, a very specific yet a very vague theme for, uh, for, for this particular panel. I'm going to focus explicitly on Northern Ireland and the politics of Brexit. And I'm going to start with um, a positive observation, um, because I think it's important that we have some context in terms of how we understand how Brexit has played out in Northern Ireland. And that positive context is that Northern Ireland has changed, and it's changed really quite fundamentally over the course of the last two to three decades. Um, and I say that as somebody who lived in Northern Ireland during the 1990s and was back there earlier this month. Um, it's a funda fundamentally different place, um, visibly for the most part. Um, and it's, it's a very positive development and outplaying of the peace process which began in the 90s or even previous to the 90s. But in other ways, however, I think it's important that we acknowledge that progress in Northern Ireland, political progress in Northern Ireland, and the process of community integration and reconciliation has actually been very slow 
despite the visible outward signs um, of positivity. And as, as Steve alluded to it, relations between the two political blocs in Northern Ireland remain unstable. And the, colla the collapse of the Stormont Assembly is um, very much a testament to the continued absence of trust. And again, I pick up on Steve's theme about how the absence of trust has played a very important role, not just in Northern Ireland in a domestic sense, but in the context of Brexit as well. And that type of environment where you don't have deep trust um, or even shallow trust between the two sides, um, it's characterised by lingering disagreement and tensions between the two communities. And that contributes to the ongoing polarisation of the communities there. Uh, and I would make the point that it's a vulnerable point in any peace process. Um, and progress can be derailed by unexpected and un unanticipated developments. And Brexit is precisely that. If we think about Northern Ireland before Brexit, so if we consider for a moment Northern Ireland's relationship with the EU prior to the 2016 referendum, um, there's an important contextual uh, context there. We can make some observations about what the EU meant in Northern Ireland. And, you know, in truth, it was a largely uncontested issue. Um, the political parties, they certainly differed in terms of how they viewed the European Union. Um, but not to the point where this prevented engagement um, on EU issues um, or, or even engagement with each other on European Union issues. And the EU, for its part, supported Northern Ireland's peace process in a, in a financial sense, but also practically as well. And that support was welcomed. And to be fair, it did spur some degree of cross-community um, engagement in Northern Ireland. So the tenor of that relationship during that period, much of it, of course, was filtered through the power-sharing institutions there and also the north-south bodies after 1998. It permitted what was a functional and a pragmatic form of engagement with the European Union. And that approach was largely able to coexist with what were very differing political perspectives on Europe, ranging from Euroscepticism on the one hand to, you know, high level and strong support for the EU on the other hand. So simply put, the EU, it was not an area of intense political competition in Northern Ireland. It certainly evoked difference and division, but um, it wasn't, EU issues were not politicised and rarely had a polarising effect. And indeed, prior to 2016, there was no party in Northern Ireland, not a single party there, even those with Eurosceptic tendencies, which was calling for the UK to leave the European Union. So fast forward then to the referendum itself. And as we know, the outcome of the referendum, such as it was, but bear in mind that in Northern Ireland, uh, there was a vote in favour of remaining within the European Union to the tune of about 56%. But what it effectively meant, the, the, the referendum was a catalyst for an, for an uncontested issue becoming contested. Uh, and the referendum resulted in the EU becoming an additional source of contestation in a vulnerable Northern Ireland. Uh, in other words, what was previously unpolitical was now political, became political. And we observed the politicisation of Brexit in Northern Ireland in three very distinct ways. And the first way is... The EU and Brexit, they just became an issue of increased salience. Um, public concerns about Brexit were substantially in evidence, although that's become much more pronounced, I would suggest, only in recent months. Secondly, opinion on the EU and Brexit became much, much more polarised in Northern Ireland. And in particular, there were very differing interpretations of what the vote meant, uh, particularly between the unionist and nationalist blocs. And to some extent, this exposed a divide, perhaps a, a growing divide, as Steve has testified to. 
And thirdly, there was an expansion in the number of actors and citizens as well and organisations who were now engaged by the European Union and the question of Brexit. Not just political parties, but increasingly citizens, many living around the border in particular, but also interest groups and business. And I've been a little bit critical in the past of how late interest groups and businesses in Northern Ireland were to this particular discussion. Now, politicisation in and of itself is not necessarily a negative phenomenon. I think it's important to say that. However, in a divided society such as Northern Ireland is, uh, politicisation can be inherently negative and it can have a polarising effect. And we're seeing some elements of that play out in the last two years or so. Needless to say, the preferences of nationalists and unionists quite simply are different. Um, their interpretation of what UK withdrawal from the EU means differs. Their formulation about Northern Ireland's future status as a sort of insider-outsider, however that pans out, is also different. And if you use that measure, it's clear that Brexit has polarised political relationships in Northern Ireland. And it's also re resulted in a politicised debate um, and I suppose the constitutional connotations which are associated with that and now built into that conversation, they have further fueled mistrust and antagonism uh, between the two, the two political sides in Northern Ireland. And I think what's most crucial to understand is that they've done it at a very vulnerable moment in the peace process. The peace process is a process. It's not a moment in time. Having said that, if we take a step back and if we look at how precisely polarised Northern Ireland is, on the question of Brexit. I think that question deserves some interrogation. And the first point I would make here is that despite political differences between the two camps in Northern Ireland, there's a shared understanding across the political divide that Brexit is problematic. And that's shared by unionists and nationalists alike. Um, in fact, Northern Ireland is particularly vulnerable. And some of the analysis produced only in the last week has really made that very, very obvious. Another important point about that, however, is, and I think this point is sometimes overlooked in the broader analysis, in Northern Ireland, as in any region of the UK, it is the most socioeconomically deprived segments of society which are likely to be hardest hit by any potential economic fallout from Brexit. And it was this cohort of society in Northern Ireland, the most economically vulnerable, who were also the most prone to political violence during the Troubles. Brexit may also exacerbate in, in economic inequalities in Northern Ireland as well. And if, you, if that happens in conjunction with growing polarisation on other domestic and local political issues, um, that has the capacity to breed instability and to lead to a regression in relationships and a dissatisfaction with the political status quo. Um, so there's a complex and there's a very toxic interplay between the economic effects of Brexit on the one hand and their impact on stability in Northern Ireland. The second point I would make here in relation to um, uh, looking at how Brexit is, is interpreted in Northern Ireland is that all political parties in Northern Ireland are opposed to a hard border on the island of Ireland. Um, but the, the problem arises in relation to the process of how you reach that particular outcome. So there are very different ideas about a how, how a hard border can and should be avoided, even though some of those ideas aren't necessarily well fleshed out. But political parties in Northern Ireland have tended to intertwine their competing national aspirations 
with proposals for a possible Brexit deal. So we see nationalists talking about so-called special status for Northern Ireland. Um, and some nationalists, admittedly, are inclined to see this as a stepping stone to United Ireland. And then on the other hand, we see unionist insistence on Northern Ireland leaving the EU alongside the rest of the UK and on the, the same terms. And that seems to prevent what might be termed some sort of creative Brexit, um, Brexit solution. Um, and all of this continues to breed an atmosphere of mistrust um, and disagreement between the two sides. Now, Steve mentioned the backstop. I almost, when I say the backstop now, use a really bad adjective. But um, the, the formula for dealing with Northern Ireland's unique circumstances has now boiled down to, to the backstop. It's become the most contested, the most disputed of tools. And that's because it means fundamentally different things to different people. Um, the core unionist community in Northern Ireland, as, as, as Steve attested to, feel deeply aggrieved by this particular proposal and by its inclusion in the withdrawal agreement. They're not alone in their opposition. Conservative Party MPs share some of their grievances, although you might question the extent to which that is motivated by other factors aside from Northern Ireland. Um, and that, of course, is at odds with nationalist support for the backstop. But it doesn't necessarily tally either with broader public and civic opinion in Northern Ireland. Um, the, the unionist interpretation of what the backstop means for the Northern Ireland economy, which, and, and for the integrity of the UK's constitutional position within the UK, that interpretation is not shared by other political and economic and sectoral and civic constituencies in Northern Ireland. So what we see in that context is four of Northern Ireland's political parties support the backstop. What we see is a significant section of civil society in Northern Ireland supports the backstop. Uh, and you can point to the CBI, you can, appoint, you can point to the trade unions, you can point to retail Northern Ireland, manufacturing Northern Ireland, the Northern Ireland Food and Drinks Association and the Ulster Farmers Union, perhaps most interesting. Obviously a key Brexit stakeholder, the Irish government, supports the backstop. And the polling tells us that a majority of public opinion in Northern Ireland supports the backstop. And that includes somewhere in the region of one third of unionist voters. And there's, there's an understanding here in that interpretation of what the backstop is that it's an insurance policy, practical temporary means of preventing a hard border on the island of Ireland. So I'm not making a judgment about the merits of the backstop. I'm simply setting out the basis for which people either support or not the backstop. So it's patently obvious that the two sides disagree, the two political blocs disagree on this particular, this particular provision. But you can't simply reduce it to one which pits unionist against nationalist. And that's because there are forces outside of politics representing a cross-section of society which appear to tacitly support the backstop. So I suppose the point I'm making is that there is a degree of common ground in Northern Ireland but it's a very problematic type of common ground because it doesn't represent the kind of consensus which was intended to be a hallmark of how Northern Ireland would do politics after 1998. It's not consensus across the two communities. It's consensus across uh, society, so to speak. Now, we need to understand Northern Ireland's political difficulties um, in order to understand more precisely um, how all of this has happened. We also need to appreciate that unexpected Westminster arithmetic has been hugely problematic as well. Um, the collapse of the power-sharing institutions 
contributed to some, I would say, poisoning of relations between the two blocs in Northern Ireland. But more importantly than that, it closed off some really important avenues of influence, um, not just for political parties, but for civil society interests as well. They might have been heard and discussed and, and debated and filtered through that. And, and the simple truth is that the failure to resurrect those institutions meant that Northern Ireland effectively lost its voice during crucial stages of the, of the Brexit process. And the irony of all of this is that Northern Ireland has never been so intensely discussed since the days of the peace process during the 1990s. And by not having a role in the broader Brexit conversation, Northern Ireland was not afforded the opportunity to flesh out any consensus, any cross-party consensus on the Brexit issue. So, so what we're likely to see now as this process pans out is um, an imposed settlement, which may or may not enjoy the support of some or, or, or one of the communities there. And, and the problem with an imposed settlement like that, particularly in a, in, a, in, a, in a place like Northern Ireland, which is in transition, is that it invariably lacks the necessary, not just the consensus, but all the le- also the legitimacy for it to be broadly acceptable. And, and, it, and again, maybe one of the tragedies of all of this is Northern Ireland in the past has been able to reach compromise and reach consensus at crucial times in its development on very, very contentious and difficult issues. And there was a whole series of factors which facilitated that. So you can talk about things like pragmatism, and and I know that Steve mentioned pragmatism. Pragmatic economic calculations have been important in terms of helping to shift political parties. And that might be particularly important in this context. Timing and sequencing, that's also been important. Time to bring constituencies along. Language, and I share Steve's concerns here, the use of moderation in language is always important during challenging negotiations. Raw necessity, safeguarding your aspirations, having to make sacrifices, having to compromise. The British and Irish governments on the same page, that was a seriously important hallmark of earlier negotiation periods. And sometimes, let me just add, financial support has also been a useful tool in terms of prodding political parties and political blocs. Now, none of these conditions are really in evidence today when we look at the Brexit situation in Northern Ireland. So where do we go from here? Um, Well, I would argue that the British government and Westminster face some very stark choices in managing the withdrawal agreement and the question of the backstop. And that's because decisions about Brexit, as it pertains to Northern Ireland, have effectively been left to the British government and to Westminster MPs. And those same MPs appear to have chosen a course of action at the moment which conflicts with the the preferences of a cross-section of society in Northern Ireland. Um, And bear in mind, this is a society which is in transition from conflict to peace. And it's a society where cross-community agreement is often very, very elusive. And it's a society which stands to be deeply impacted by the Brexit process. And I don't for a moment underestimate what are very legitimate unionist concerns about this particular scenario. Um, And unionists, I mean, they're right to have legitimate concerns about the fact that their interpretation of the backstop is not shared more widely. And, you know, if I'm to be frank, it's possible that one day those concerns might prove to be prophetic. Um, But nevertheless, despite its evident toxicity, 
Brexit has somehow managed at this very late stage to elicit some degree of cross-community support for the withdrawal agreement, maybe even reluctant cross-community support for the withdrawal agreement and the backstop. And the question now is, should that be disregarded? Or are there questions about what responsibility the National Parliament feels towards Northern Ireland when it comes, when it comes to Brexit? Um, in a society where community relations have been difficult for generations, the emergence of some, what is very limited, admittedly, unity of purpose, you know, to what extent does that deserve to be taken seriously at this point? And how does or how should the Westminster government, or the British government in Westminster deal with this scenario? So I'm going to finish on a series of questions, um, none of which I have the answers to. But the question is, I suppose I'm trying, to, I'm trying to frame the conversation in a slightly different way. Is there an onus on the British government in Westminster to respect the legitimacy of this shared sentiment in Northern Ireland on the backstop? Um, and the British government was intimately involved in the peace process down through the years. So is it right that they should now renege on Northern Ireland at a time when, you know, it does speak with some degree of cross-community spirit? Uh, about its own future. Um, is, it, is it right that Westminster and the British, the British government should, should shun signs of cross-community agreement to the extent that they, that they might exist? Um, and if you, if you deny the wishes of, of that particular cross-section cross of Northern Ireland's society, does that in the longer term do more damage to Northern Ireland? Um, and to the UK, to be quite frank, does it, does it fuel further disillusionment with the British government and, and Northern Ireland's prospects and Northern Ireland's future within the United Kingdom? Um, so if consensus is not possible, if consensus is not possible, um, should the views of the majority prevail? And, and I ask that, that question, I reluctantly ask that question because you need to marry that question with what the Belfast Agreement and the peace process is and the emphasis it placed on cross-community consensus and power sharing. So, so that question departs a little bit from what has, been, uh, what has been the hallmark of Northern Ireland's existence since, since 1998. But, you know, um, that kind of loose, even if it is loose, cross-community position... Um, does, will that enjoy greater legitimacy? To, to what extent is, does that have the legitimacy to help the British government and Westminster to make a decision um, about what's next in this very difficult situation? Thank you very much, Mary. Thank you to all our speakers. We started a, a little bit late, so we'll allow it to, to drift about 10 minutes past the, the planned finishing time in, in order to give sufficient time for questions and discussion. I see one question. Is there any other? Uh, oh, okay. So we'll, we'll take a couple of questions together, Deirdre, then Kevin, and then you. So go ahead. I suppose what's interesting listening to this conversation is how little mention we have of the confidence supply agreement. And in my opinion, how that confidence and supply agreement between the DUP and Theresa May 
um, has dramatically changed the political landscape in Northern Ireland. So as you know, Theresa May called a disastrous general election, went into a pact with the DUP to maintain power. The idea that that doesn't change the political landscape is ludicrous. She agreed to withhold or with, to uphold the Good Friday Agreement with rigorous impartiality. And in the intervening period of over two years, we've no talks, we've had pretense of talks, we've had no impetus to get our government back, we've been put on the back burner. It is quite clear that Theresa May is saying to her Secretary of State, keep the lid on Northern Ireland because I absolutely couldn't cope with it in my in-tray, but plus, I cannot upset the DUP. The Conference and Supply Agreement sets out what uh, the quid pro quo is, but nowhere in that confidence and supply agreement does it say that the DUP has vetoed on the EU negotiations for withdrawal. But that is what has happened, and that is what has upset the political dynamics in Northern Ireland. Not just, but it is a huge factor. Okay, thanks, Dr. Kevin. I thought this was a, a terrific panel. I just had a couple of questions. Firstly, um, in terms of the EU's reaction to a, a demand or a request for, for an extension. I'm wondering, have you come across anybody in Brussels speculating that, like a cynical European politician, facing a European election in May with populists banging at the door, uh, might prefer to see a no deal in March with all of the, hopefully from his point of view, chaos that that might entail, than have it happen in June when it would be too late to do any good so that was, I mean, I don't know if you heard that at all. And then I had a question for you about tribalism, because I mean, it is very worrying. I, mean, about, I don't know if the Queen was right to talk about uh, this, but she was right to think it, you know. And your sense is that everybody in Westminster right now is either motivated by trying to avoid a corporate government or bringing it about, and there are far more existential issues for the Union, uh, and, and even for England. Forget about the Union, even just for England. So, um, what does one do to, 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 to get out of this situation? Is it, is it that it requires leadership, or are there any more structural things that could be done to move away from this tribalism? And what would be the uh, Brexit outcome that would be most conducive to, to, to healing those wounds? And just one more question. Rory Carroll from The Guardian. It's many for Steve, I think um, you mentioned. Um, some people feel that this process in Northern Ireland is unraveling. Just wondering whether you yourself believe that's happening. And secondly, do you see any sign that the DUP is softening its position and may perhaps be prepared to accept some formula of words um, that may emerge from Brussels? And if so, what would the DUP's response be to that? I think the big question is which DUP are you talking about? <laughs> so do, do you want to start off and develop I'll just start off and talk about a couple of the issues in your end. Um, one of the issues, and it's one of the questions we have as a unionist party, is specifically where the DUP are at. Because I've got to be honest with you, I don't actually think many people in the DUP are actually unionists. They're ultra-nationalists. In many respects, they're ultras. There is an ultra-movement within the DUP that's focused around certain... MPs, one who seems to spend more of his time in sort of Sri Lanka than he does anywhere else, and Sammy Wilson. That is an ultra-orthodox view of Brexit. 
and it is very ideologically driven, regardless of whatever there might be. You see the language from the likes of Jeffrey Donaldson and the rest of it, which seems to be much more uh, looking to try and find a way through. And you can see language from the likes of Gregory Campbell, who is being interpreted as being much more sort of closer to some sort of deal or a breakthrough or some sort of arrangement, they can do that as well. The one thing I would say, and, and I know you've studied Russia a lot and the rest of it, it's a bit like criminology, that everybody from the outside is trying to interpret what a very small group inside are actually thinking. Mm -hmm. And one of the big issues within the DUP at the moment is that there is a massive sort of schism that's built around this ideo ideology of what they want to do. There are people within the DUP who seriously believe a hard Brexit is what they want because that would be able to deliver them a hard border and of a hard border that would sort of start as part of the, it would reinforce the divisions on the island and for them that would be electorally successful for them for going to the future. That is an absolutely anathema to us in the Ulster Unionist Party, which is why we in the Ulster Unionist Party be very clear is that we want a deal we want a deal that works. We want a deal that works north, south, east and west. But the backstop is the fast track towards pushing us more and more towards this extremism where we need to as well. And we will keep on saying it. And I think there was somebody else was talking about the question, Adira, you're talking about sort of the role of civil society in Northern Ireland. There's two observations I'll make about that. The first one was during the Remain campaign itself, to actually get some of these people to get off the fence, they were so embedded in you need a proctologist to get them off. And the same people who were quite recently willing to stand in a line and blame the DUP didn't actually come out and say the same thing. The other answer is the Sinn Féin should go and take their seats in Parliament. They wouldn't say it. So they have now become politicised. And you find at exactly the same moment, and the Farmers Union is a really interesting one, at the autumn show in Balmoral, nearly every single one of the farming groups were going up to Diane Dodds and saying, well, you're behind the scenes, I don't necessarily agree with what the Farmers Union is saying, but I just need to be seen to be saying it. But the fundamental thing for civil society in Northern Ireland is they put their heads above the parapet. They were politicised. They were there to support Theresa May's deal, and Theresa May, at the last minute, pulled it. But they're now in the political arena. And as I said to them, I said, welcome to the Nolan Show. Anybody who doesn't know Stephen Nolan is a particular journalist in Northern Ireland who runs a, like a shock, not allowed to use the word shock jock, am I? No, not allowed to use shock jock. He's got a very popular sort of radio show in the morning. That is, you know, that has helped. That degree of politicisation means that that element of civil society are now retreating rapidly. And I, when I mean rapidly, I mean rapidly. And just so that you're aware of, you know, we recently had a by-election for a council seat in Carrickfergus, and there is a lot of very middle class areas in Carrickfergus, and we're out knocking the doors. And I can tell you right now that the DUP line that we're going to see at the union and we're going to make sure there's a hard Brexit was resonating strongly across all those electorates. And that to me is something that's significantly worrying because that under that completely gives the gives the lie that in some way there is a cross community support and growing support for a backstop deal. Because that's not true. It's not happening. There's nobody in my office in Ballyclare's knocking on the door and said, Steve, you need to go out and support the backstop. I tell you what, they knock they walk in my office and knock lots of times every day and talk about lots of things. 
I don't see the support for the backstop. And bearing in mind, I'm a Remainer. You know, I don't have to go and hide myself. That's, that's what's happening. But sorry. So who, who else would like to come in? I, I can take up uh, Kevin's point about the extension and whether <coughs> there are different capitals that might be tempted to, uh, to, to, to let the no deal happen and then um, you know, have, have the message resonate uh, through the European Parliament elections. I think the different capitals are, are, are very concerned, especially in France, they're very concerned about, about Brexit spilling into the European elections because the, Emmanuel Macron is uh, trying to position himself as a new champion of uh, the pro-European centre uh, up against the, uh, the far, far right um, in, in France. Um, and he, you know, he's, he's very reluctant to see the Brexit issue uh, lead in to, to the extent where the, the the National Front in France could say that you know look Brexit happened three years ago the people voted uh, great exercise in democracy and they're still preventing them from leaving so that's why they, they're reluctant to have the extension get tangled up with the parliamentary elections but I would have to say that the the unveiling of the chaos in Westminster has been its own adver advertisement for, for the, uh, the difficulties of trying to leave the European Union. And you've seen that uh, public support for the European project has risen across the EU in virtually every member state since Brexit happened. In fact, they were, when they were drawing up the political declaration, uh, which, as you know, sits alongside the withdrawal agreement, it's a non-binding declaration, but it sets out the mandate for the future relationship and part of the uh, three, one of the three elements that were supposed to go into this political declaration was the the notion that life outside the EU cannot be seen as better uh, as it is inside. You cannot have the same uh, benefits because they wanted to send that signal across the European Union. They actually took that out in the end because it was self-evident uh, to people that um, you know life is not necessarily better uh, if you if you try to leave the European Union. So I. I you know, but the the question of the extensions is now um, because she has formally admitted that this might be an option. Um, they can start the discussion. There's been a lot of uh, informal um, war gaming at uh, at legal services level in Brussels about what it might mean for the European elections and so on. Um, and the conditionality of uh, of the request will also become an issue uh, in the coming weeks. But they're they're just now getting to, to grips with that. Could I come in on that? Yeah, just to add to that about the extension, um, I mean, you've got to factor in as well Nigel Farage's Brexit party, which is now officially registered as a party with the Electoral Commission, um, was basically founded as, I hate to use the word, but like a backstop against an extension, which is predominantly now seen by Brexiteers as even... Um, an, an extent of a very time limited extension is, is seen as a betrayal because it in, in these sort of polarized times it, it's seen as a way to stop Brexit you know if, if we don't get out on the 29th of March then it opens up the possibility that we won't get out at all um, now bearing in mind that EU elections are, I think, the only kind of election in Britain that's on the basis of proportional representation. I, th I think there's a very real danger that, it, I mean, it, it could get the highest share of the vote 
as UKIP did. Um, so the last thing the EU elites would want, I would say, is however many MEPs from Nigel Farage's Brexiteer party just in the EU Parliament to cause trouble. Yeah, the, um, the confidence... I mean, you couldn't have scripted that electoral outcome, to be perfectly frank, uh, the way the figures fell. And there's no doubt about it, the DUP having that privileged position has been an obstacle um, to the nurturing of any sort of consensus within Northern Ireland on, on anything related to Brexit. Um, but I do think, nevertheless, if you look at the DUP as a party and the way in which they operate, the way in which they behave, um, they, they often tend to moderate their position when there's a belief that the position is simply not feasible or the victory is not winnable. So there's, a, there's an issue of timing here, and I, I, from my perspective, I would, certainly, um, I, I would certainly perceive some softening of the DUP's narrative on this particular question. Now, it's regrettable that we've had, you know, what, nearly two years now um, of the DUP being, being able to, you know, be, being Northern Ireland's voice, effectively. There's an issue of leadership here as well, and, um, and I suppose I reference Theresa May and the Conservative Party here as well. Um, you know, sometimes being, being a leader involves very brave decisions and very difficult decisions. And she hasn't necessarily been willing to take any of the opportunities for demonstrating leadership when it comes to challenging the DUP. Uh, so there's been a... a, a, a you know, a series of features of the DUP in the confidence and supply agreement, which have definitely been an obstacle in terms of progressing Brexit. But I, I would tentatively suggest that there are some holes being poked in the depth and the strength and the intensity of the DUP's position. Um, and I, I wouldn't say necessarily say common sense will prevail, but, but, but I, I, I think when the writing's on the wall, that's when we will see um, some further softening of, of the DUP's position. And maybe I say that more in hope than in expectation, but, but, but if, if you look at the DUP in terms of previous and past behaviours, the issue of timing and sequencing, has, has, it's, it's discernible. Yeah, I saw a few hands going up. I'll just sort of, so there's one over here, um, one here, one here, and one there. Okay, so this um, there's a deep underappreciation in Ireland about the depth of feeling against Europe in Britain. And you know, we've deluded ourselves thinking you know, that the majority of the House is against no, no deal. We get that. But like, the bottom line is the middle of England is still divided 50-50 anyway. And, and it will be after all this is done. Mm. Can you help us understand what that could lead to if we don't pay adequate regard to those who still have a deep antipathy to the EU in any outcome? Just how troublesome could it get? Uh, what, what, what it would lead to for whom? What, what's yeah, the situation? Well, so if, if, if the political sort of direction of travel here is to find a way, and I'm, I'm part of that, and to land reasonably softly, there will still be a whole load of people who don't like that outcome. And, in, and most of them don't live in a wealthy part of England. Mm -hmm. So you know, are we looking at trouble in the streets or some other you know, uh, version of that? 10 years from now, if, if whatever is, is, is unsettling those genuinely decent people has not been properly addressed in the outcome? 
Um, I mean, you're certainly right that there's a widespread feeling um, amongst many areas of, of England in, in particular that they haven't been listened to and that there is a very deep history of Eurosceptic thought, Eurosceptic feeling. And, I mean, that's what led to the rise of UKIP because people were thinking... You know, we, we at least want the option of a referendum to get out, and no one's listening to us. Um, in terms of, I mean, I, I think if you're talking about actual people on the streets, I think the biggest risk to that is if we ended up not leaving. Um, I think if it was a soft Brexit um, of some kind, whether it be May's deal, which obviously keeps very close alignment, um, or say remaining in the single market, I, I, I do think that would pacify a lot of people, actually. Um, because a, a lot of these things are symbolic. Um, and obviously, what, once we're technically out of Europe and out of most of the political stuff, um, I mean, I think I, I can't quote any exact opinion polls, but ironically, from, the, from polls that I can remember, but I can't remember the source, unfortunately. <coughs> Staying in the single market is, is fairly popular. It, it's mainly the political stuff that people want to get out of. Um, so, so ironically... So what do you mean by the political stuff? <laughs> the non-economic stuff, let's put it that way. Um, the CAP, I would define as political, um, ECJ. Regulatory loan. But you can't, you, can't have, uh, you, you can't be in the single market without the ECJ. Uh, and you, can, you can't, the ECJ, the single market can only function because of, you know, uh, monitoring. Uh, I, I think regulatory alignment where it relates to economic stuff is more sort of acceptable. But, that, um, but the trouble is that, that for the single market to function, that requires this, um, you know, supranational infrastructure of, um, the European Commission, the Court of Justice, the Court of Auditors, and so on. I mean, as, as Sabine Wayne said, you know, pe people, member states uh, trust each other, but not spontaneously. They, they trust each other because the rules are there, and there is uh, an arbitration, and there is enforcement, and there is monitoring. Um, and I think that that's been fundamentally difficult for, for the polity in the UK to, to fully grasp, you know, that that. that single market is great and I think the Labour Party talks about uh, a close relationship with the single market I mean to me that's meaningless I mean the Labour Party as a unit doesn't really talk about anything cohesive mm. because there's so many different views yeah. um, and, and Corbyn's just having to balance so many bulls in the air all at once yeah. so I'll, t I'll take another question and um, I haven't forgotten the people who put their hands up at Terry <coughs> Well, uh, my question actually has to do with the discussion which was just had, uh, which is that uh, I've, over the last several weeks, been personally curious as to whether or not there was anybody who was willing to proactively defend what became the Corbyn position in the last couple of days, which is a very soft Brexit or the Norway uh, or EFTA solutions. Uh, because you know, maybe 
you know, as an American who lives in Ireland and has dual citizenship, I'm that Martian standing outside of it and saying, that's a very attractive looking solution. But I wonder whether if you're inside, the reason that that hasn't got much play is that it in fact isn't actually supported by anybody. That is, it doesn't accomplish what Brexit is supposed to accomplish if you're in favor of Brexit. Uh, and, and here, I'd just like to mention immigration. It's bizarre that we've had this discussion to this point and immigration hasn't come up with Because Norway doesn't stop immigration. No. Yep, you're absolutely uh, right. And, uh, and then from the point of view of the Remainers, uh, Norway eliminates all of this sort of cosmopolitan European citizenship stuff. Uh, the Remainers are emotionally committed to. So what you have is a potential compromise which doesn't achieve the heart's desires uh, of either side and therefore it has no support and therefore it's received no discussion. We'll just pick a card. It's actually related to that. It's just a quick point about after It's just, I mean, you made a point about the UK being involved originally, but I wonder how attractive it's going to look to the members of after to have the UK involved. Yeah, Norwegians don't like it. And rather discontented and not, not backwards and coming forwards yeah. and expressing that. So. Yeah, I mean, in, in typical British style, uh, uh, this option has always been discussed of, oh, well, we could go and rejoin EFTA, forgetting that there's, like, other members already in EFTA, all of whom have to unanimously give their permission. Um, I mean, the EFTA option has been, in practice, discussed at various points, but sort of no one dare call it by that name. I, I mean, you've had the, what was called, Norway for now option, which was, I think it was a few months ago that was being promoted by Nick Bowles, MP. Um, and then a few weeks ago, it emerged again as Common Market 2.0. Um, so it's been discussed but in various sort of mutated forms with some kind of like customs union added on. Um, so it, it's really weird. It's almost like people are disagreeing about nothing. I mean, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn's positions, I think, if you put them on a, a spectrum, are, are actually very close, but neither of them can admit it because it's British politics and, and you have to have all this adversarial stuff, um, which comes back to the point the gentleman at the back made earlier about, you know, how do you overcome this massive divide in society and in political life. I mean, unfortunately, British politics isn't very well geared to overcoming division and conflict. Um, okay. We, so, so just, just to, um, there is an enormous amount of discussion on what we call the LWO option, the least worst option. And there is, underneath, there is everybody's talking about what could we, what is the minimum we can get away with? And I have talked to all political parties, and there, there was always, until fairly recently, there was presumption that it would look something a wee bit like Norway. But as the Norwegian Prime Minister explained to me quite recently, it would be nice if somebody would have asked us first. But it's, that was the presumption it was going to. The thing that has really changed in the last two, three months, I think, is the whole ideology thing has taken charge. And I'm not sure that that is still on the table. 
I just genuinely don't know, and that's that's a that's a concerning bit because we've moved from you know it doesn't matter what you call it you know it's a customs union but call it whatever you want but come up with some solution that looks vaguely like that that makes it work. So we do a fudge on the ECJ, we do a fudge on this and all the rest of it. We've always done fudges. It looks a bit like this. It'll be an interim. We'll get over it and we'll move on. That was the least worst option, and said, well, that's where we'll get to. But over the last couple of months, we haven't got there, and there is a beginning of a sense that maybe that opportunity's passed. So that is a really, I think that's quite a concerning place to be. Let, let me just take the one final question and then give everybody on the panel a chance to say their last piece and respond to anything they may not have responded to um, yet. Brendan, you yeah, I, I was just struck by the, a lot of the arguments you were, you were making. I was trying to step in, as you were presenting yourself as a Brexiteer, and I was trying to step into the Brexit space. Obviously, I'm, I'm not in that space, but, but it's a great intellectual exercise to do. And what, what sort of was missing was this Brexit imaginary, which I've heard sketched by Rhys Mogg and then the um, Institute of Economic Affairs and their Plan A. And it, you didn't really spend as much mm -hmm. time suggesting what would be a plausible or coherent, you know, argument, serious argument for <coughs> what you would get with a no deal Brexit or where you would go, or why Brexit even more profoundly. I mean, if you look at the free trade piece that Boris Johnson sometimes talks about, the biggest deliverer of free trade is the EU itself. So there's free trade in South Korea right now, and there's a welter of free trade deals they are often with common countries like New Zealand, so they're much more difficult. But surely from a British perspective, if, you, if free trade is your big prize, you're leaving an organization that actually has a track record of delivering free trade so that you can then sign a Canadian-style free trade agreement with the organization that signed a free trade agreement with Canada. It just, it's a multi-pattern. You know, it, does, it doesn't kind of make real straightforward British practices. It just doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't see the big, serious intellectual argument for Brexit. And I'm trying to be generous. I'm trying to say there must be some. There's always two sides, right, to a proposition. Okay. But I'm just thinking, this really doesn't profoundly make any. Even if I step into those Brexit boots, I just can't see it. Okay, well, the, the boots are, in terms of free trade, that... I mean, free trade agreements don't necessarily deliver free trade or the type of free trade that you want or is beneficial to your particular country. I mean, free trade isn't just a, a single thing. Free trade agreements deal with tiny regulations in thousands of different areas. So the, the Brexiteer thinking is that, firstly, the EU has a, a very poor track record in delivering free trade agreements because you've got... 28, hopefully soon to be 27 members, and they've all got to, with different economies, and they've all got to somehow balance their interests. And that because the UK economy is so different to your typical European economy, the type of free trade agreements that we are getting aren't particularly beneficial to the UK economy. Well, that's a very short-term. That's a very short-termist view, I think. That it's not true. It's Faroe Islands. We're doing well. <laughs> the whole point is that first you get out, and then, then you have your priorities of the countries that you'd really like to negotiate free trade agreements with, on your terms, rather than having to take account of the interests of another twenty-seven countries, um, and then you go out and negotiate those. So it's a long-term game. It's not like, oh. 
tomorrow on the 30th of March we're, we're going to have more free trade. No, of course we're not. Sorry, I'm conscious we're quite yeah. a bit over time, and I just ask everybody to say final. But you're looking 10, 15 years down the t- line, and it's it's a, a long-term goal, basically. Okay. Steve, do you want to say something? Um, yeah, I, this, is a, this is a message to you, the audience, and to talk to anybody you can, or any influencers you can reach base with, particularly here in Ireland to try and get the relationship between Britain and Ireland back on track. And I cannot overemphasize how important that is. And if you actually believe in the peace process in Northern Ireland, if you believe in the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, make sure that we get to a point where Ireland and Britain are talking to each other again. So we can get back to April 2014, because if we don't, we're heading for a world of hurt that isn't going to help anybody. I, I would agree with, uh, with everything Steve says there. Although I, I think, um, I mean, when I think about the last couple of years, it seems to me that the British government and the Conservative Party, in particular, um, they 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 see Brexit as the starting point and that the world has to kind of bend to the realities of Brexit. Um, whereas the EU is saying, well, if you want to leave, that's fine, but you're not kind of wrecking the furniture on the way out. Uh, so, um, you know, if the, if the Good Friday Agreement, as you, as you say, is, is very dangerously undermined by the backstop, well, it's actually Brexit which dangerously undermines the, the Good Friday Agreement. And the backstop is there to try and limit the damage. And obviously, there's disagreement as to the merits and, and demerits of that. I would just say that um, at this stage, I, I, I cannot see the EU fundamentally changing the backstop. Uh, and there's, there's 30 days left. So either she squeaks across the line uh, on um, March the 12th, and then the EU endorse that, uh, depending on the form of words that Geoffrey Cox can get, um, or there's... Or there's uh, an extension or no deal um, and then after that you're in if there's no deal you're in a very very acrimonious landscape uh, and you know if, if you think it's difficult at the moment you know you ain't seen nothing yet <laughs> Mary? Well very briefly I would, I would echo everything that's, that Steve and, and Tony have said and I would make a, a, a sort of a counter appeal as well um, to, to say that you know it's important that people like Anna and people like Steve um, understand Ireland and understand its its position and its concerns. And even beyond that, I think it's important that we keep reminding London in particular about what was achieved in Northern Ireland. And its legacy may not be brilliant and it hasn't reached an end point, but it's very important that what achievements have been reached and what momentum there is, that that's not lost and that Northern Ireland doesn't become a casualty of this, you know, what will be a transformative moment in British and European history. Yeah, I mean, to follow on from that, I I would say this exercise of just try and understand the other side and put yourselves in their shoes, read their articles, just so both sides can understand each other. Otherwise, we'll never move beyond this deadlock. I mean, the backstop, I didn't even have time to talk about it, but it is almost universally perceived by Brexiteers as a trap to keep um, the UK 
locked into as close alignment um, with the EU as possible so that we don't become more competitive. I mean, you can disagree with that by all means, but, but at least understand that it's a sincerely held position rather than just some kind of rhetoric. Okay. Um, thank you very much to all our panellists and thank you as well to giving them such a, a good hearing and, and generating all those interesting questions. Thank you very much.